Episode 229, Laura Terrell, former White House Special Assistant and now a leadership coach. Everyone makes mistakes and trying to find a favorite one sometimes can be a little bit daunting. I'm Mark Rabin. This is my favorite mistake. In this podcast, you'll hear business leaders and other really interesting people talking about their favorite mistakes. Because we all make mistakes, but what matters is learning from our mistakes instead of repeating them over and over again. So this is the place for honest reflection and conversation, personal growth and professional success. Visit our website at myfavoritemistakepodcast.com. To learn more about Laura, her coaching work and more, look for links in the show notes or go to markraven.com slash mistake 229. As always, thanks for listening. Well, hi, everybody. Welcome back to My Favorite Mistake. I'm Mark Raven. Our guest today is Laura Terrell. She is an executive coach with more than 25 years of experience as a legal leader and a business leader. Prior to launching her coaching practice, Laura was a special assistant to the president at the White House during the George W. Bush administration. She was a senior level appointee at the U.S. Department of Justice, an equity partner in two large global law firms, and in-house counsel at a major global consulting and business advisory firm. Laura has led and managed teams of hundreds of people in multiple countries. She's been a top advisor for many Fortune 500 and FTSE 100 companies. So Laura, it's really a pleasure to have you here. Thanks for joining us. How are you? I'm great, Mark, and thanks for having me on today. Yeah, it's great to have you here. And and there's a lot we can talk about here about um, questions and and coaching uh, executives. But I get to ask the first question, and as we always do here, um, I know you're not surprised by the question. It's always the same. So, you know, with all the different things that you've done in your career, Laura, what would you say is your favorite mistake? Well, I appreciate the question, Mark, because I think everyone makes mistakes and trying to find a favorite one sometimes can be a little bit daunting. Maybe you've got several, maybe some of them aren't so favorite. But one for me actually relates to my time in the George W. Bush administration and the role I had at the White House. The uh, first role I took at the White House was very exciting. I was barely 30 years old. I was being asked to work at the White House in a really important role that for me was just incredibly exciting. And I didn't give a lot of thought to the pay for the job. And and part of that was due to the fact that I was young and um, it was, you know, I knew a pay cut from the private sector role I'd been in. That's what you do when you go to the public sector and certainly to work for the president and the White House. Those are things that you say, wow, this is a great opportunity. I would I would do this for free, you think sometimes. <laughs> yeah. But for me, I also didn't really think about what other people were being paid in similar roles or in the same roles within uh, the White House organization. And let me say, I don't regret for a minute taking the role and having the job, which was incredibly fun. It's a privilege to work in that role. It was a wonderful experience. But I did come to find out that my pay was less than others. And that made me think, gosh, should I have asked? You know, I'd always had roles that I'd come in and pretty much known what the going market rate was for the job I had as an attorney in a law firm and earlier in my career in government, when you're very much bound by the uh, GS schedules and the SES schedules, you have a great idea. I didn't have any idea. And it would have required some investigation on my part. This was in the pre 
internet days when the internet was really kind of rolling and you could get a lot of information. We think now about all the blogs and all the internet sites that you can get pay information from and information about what the market looks like, maybe even people posting on chat boards, other sources. There wasn't any of that. And I didn't know who to ask. And I didn't bother to ask. I could have even maybe pressed my uh, hiring person a bit more and asked for that information, but I didn't do it. Well, fast forward a few more jobs. And and, and before you do that, sorry to interrupt, what, what was that first role? And was that at the beginning? The first of role was a counsel term? in the White House Counsel's Office. Okay. And so a terrific role. I did learn from that, that when I came back to the White House a few years later, that I wanted to ask for an increased salary. And I did, and I got it. And it was still a little bit easier because I had that experience. When I went to private practice a few years after that, I really didn't have any foundation for knowing what I was getting into. I mean, the the market had changed since I had been in government for four or five years. It was very, very different. I didn't have a sense of what I was valued at in the market. And I almost fell back into the same trap. I almost just went with what I was offered. A very good friend of mine who I had worked with at the White House said to me, don't do that. Wait Mm -hmm. a minute. Yeah. You know what happened last time? What's your information about what you think you're worth to be paid in this new role? It's private sector. It's a law firm that really wants to hire you. It's an incredible opportunity. You also need to lay down a marker for what you think you're valued at. And I thought, I have no idea how to go about that because I didn't have any idea how to go about it the first time when I was having that dilemma at the White House. And this person sat me down and she said, you need to write down, you know, what do you think your strengths are? What do you think your skills are? You need to start calling people that you know in other law firms in the city. And you need to start asking them, can you share with me your salary? Can you share with me what you think the range is? Is it different at your firm for this kind of job or this role? And I remember, Mark, so clearly when I was negotiating for this job, but I felt like, hey, I've been in government for five years. I've got some debts I need to pay. I've got some bills that are coming due. Any amount of money looks pretty good to me. But I had to really brace myself to take that research. And I remember having index cards in front of me and asking you know, questions about the role. And when I was getting pushed back on the salary saying, well, I appreciate that. But here's why I think I'm valued at more. I know what others are being paid in this market, in the city, in this kind of role, and it's X. And that was so hard for me. Uh, I still have the index cards, by the way. They (laughs) probably sweat stained from me (laughs) being so nervous at the time doing that. But I felt like that was an incredible opportunity for me. And I have remembered that since then in every role I have been in. Mm. It's not to say that I think that I should have always asked for much more than I was being offered. I don't think that's the answer to reject any salary. I've taken roles that I think the salary is very fair and very good pay without uh, pushing back as much. But that first time that I learned that had only I asked some questions, had only I been perhaps more aggressive, perhaps more inquisitive. I might have been paid more and I might have been most importantly paid what I think I was worth. 
So what was, and, and thank you for sharing, you know, the, 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 the story there and, you know, in terms of follow-up questions, what, what was the second role? Was it coming back into a similar well, the second role was position? In- was that the DOJ role? No, the second role uh, was coming back to the White House in a different role, but um, doing work with Homeland and National Security that had a different aspect to it. But by that time, I knew a lot more about the organization and the institution, and I knew more about what people were being paid at that role and at that level. Yeah. So was this all in in um, President Bush's first term? Yes. Okay. Um, how how did you in that first role discover that pay gap? Because a lot of times people don't like to talk about pay, or at least openly, or some workplaces discourage it. Which I, I believe that's that becomes a legal issue. I'm you know I'm not a lawyer, and um, we, I, don't, I don't know if you know the answer to that. We we should consult an employment lawyer. Um, I mean it. Do you know, is is it a mistake for employers to tell people, hey, don't talk about your pay? I don't think that an employer in most jurisdictions can prevent people from talking about their compensation unless they contract for it. But very few employers are going to do that. And it's not a best practice. It chills someone's freedom of speech, if you will, to be able to talk about this. But Right. There's also sometimes an unspoken rule. You don't want to mention that because you don't want somebody to ask for more than you get paid or you want to think that, you know, you've got some insider information. It's interesting. The way I actually found out was at the time there was a think tank that was doing a study of White House rules and writing about them and how people come into them and transition. And that's where I found a breakdown of salaries, including my own. And that's where I found out that my pay was less. And interestingly enough, the person who succeeded in me in the role was paid more than me. Mm. That was also a big eye opener. Uh, the person that succeeded me advocated for a different role and title and salary. And I found that, you know, what if I had done that instead? Yeah. Do, do you think, I mean, you might it might not be easy to know. Do you think it was a matter of age and experience? Was there maybe gender I think it was a matter of age experience. It's a unique organization. And I think other people knew coming in also, though, they'd talked to people that had served in prior administrations. They knew what pay bans looked like. They knew what compensation looked like. I didn't have that information. And I didn't go and find it out for myself. And that's on me. That's the mistake I made was I didn't go and ask and investigate and there were, you know, other things that I would find out as I went through my job. Hey, I didn't know that. If only I'd asked somebody or if only I knew about this aspect. And that got me thinking that a lot of the knowledge that we glean is really powerful, but we have to ask for it. It just doesn't happen to us. It doesn't fall into our lap. Mm. And I mean, it seems it was to your benefit that a friend said something. I don't know if that person, someone you considered a mentor or a coach, even informally. It's somebody that I consider a good mentor and a friend. And as I said, when I was about to head into the private sector and I was about to do the same thing, say, gosh, that's a lot of money. That seems really great. That's a great salary. This person said to me, well, do you know what other people are making in the same role, in the same market, in the same responsibilities? And I thought, no, I don't know. And I almost just walked through that door again where I didn't become an advocate for myself. And by that time, there was a little bit more information. I also knew what other law firms were offering me and the role that I was coming into in private practice. And so was there a little bit more 
data that I had more readily available, yes, but I still had to ask questions and I still had to be able to make the ask for myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I mean, this is outside of my expertise, of course, but I mean, I think I've read articles that talk about um, not excusing gender disparities in pay, but pointing to at least a generalization that men tend to be more aggressive in negotiating for compensation compared to women. And of course, the generalization is not going to be generally true. I mean, do, do you, I mean, do, do you have kind of thoughts on, on trying to generalize there? Yeah. The data does reflect that Harvard Business Review has done some studies and some case studies that have addressed that. I think the other thing is that women are much more reluctant to ask. There's a view that by asking and pushing back on a salary that you're being pushy or you're being demanding and that that's not expected. I was working with a client, for example, who was trying to determine the best way to go about negotiating a compensation package from a firm that a law firm that they were very interested in joining. And I remember asking them, well, do you know what others are making in the market? Because that's important. And they had a sense, but they hadn't really done a very detailed survey of the people they knew. And they had a great network of people to be able to ask. In my coaching role, I could also share what I knew. That was a great starting point. But I also heard from the client that the firm was offering an amount that was less than what that was. And the client thought she could get the firm to come up on their their, uh, offer And I said, will you be satisfied if you ask for why and they give you why? And she said, no, I think I'm still going to feel I'm underpaid because this is only about 20,000 more than I'm making in my other firm. And the advice I said was, if you think you're going to be unhappy with the the pay, don't start in the role that way. That is not a good way to get, get started. But it's difficult because I think the perception is, if you keep asking and you keep pushing that you'll be resented and it's a bad way to start the job, but it's just as bad a way to start the job. If you feel you've asked for less than what you would be satisfied with. Yeah. And, you know, thinking about some of the coaching that you do now with, with executives, Laura, you know, kind of stepping back um, you know, on that theme of people hesitating to ask questions for, for, for different reasons. And I think, you know, being afraid to ask questions maybe leads to assumptions or, mistakes, you know, in, in, in different ways, but what, what are some of the, the, the barriers and, and, and how do you try to help coach people um, through that to where they, they maybe are asking more of the questions that they should be? Well, I think you put your finger on it. It's assumptions that people make and they hear something maybe through office gossip or the rumor mill about how difficult it will be to make a promotion or to be selected to head a project team or to get transferred to a different office or to have a work from home option or whatever the priority and the goal is for that person. And I think that that becomes a really limiting belief. And one of the things I talk about with many of my clients is how important is this goal to you? If you're afraid to ask to get more information because you think, oh, I'll be frowned on, or what if the answer is no? What if I'm asking Am I going to be promoted to VP within the next year? And the answer is no, we don't have a pipeline for that. And we think you're terrific, but we don't have a way to promote that. How 
limiting is your expectation of getting a negative answer that you're not going to ask for the information. And I think a lot of people are really scared of getting a negative answer. But if this is really important to you, if this is your goal, and this goal matters to you, most clients really need to ask that question and really want to ask that question. So we often frame it in terms of how important that goal is, and how much you're willing to risk by not knowing or making a bad assumption. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it seems like it's a matter of thinking through what's the worst that could happen if I ask? What's the worst that could happen if I don't ask? Maybe the, the outcome of not asking is more likely to be bad. Absolutely. And many people that I talk with tell me that they would rather not know mm. because it's just easier. I know the answer is no, but then I've also talked with clients who've waited to get the answers to important questions. And ultimately, maybe they find out those answers inadvertently. Maybe they didn't ask, when can I be promoted? But they find out in a one-off conversation with an executive vice president that, you know, there's just no roles in our department and we don't see those coming through. And it's almost reinforcing. I had a client that said, when I heard something like that, it said to me, wow, all the things that I feared are true. Why did I just sit on what I could have had more concrete information on? I wasted time that could have been spent going to another firm, asking for a transfer to another business unit, moving uh, roles in a different way, asking for a different supervisor. And those are the things I think are really painful is when people find they've been locked in a place that they might have had more control and more agency over their goals. Yeah, that makes me think of of times when... I was maybe afraid to ask or like, you know, there, there may be um, a book in your future. Am I making a mistake? I don't think, I don't think you've written a book. Is that right? I have some thoughts for my book, but I have not put one out there yet. I'm I'm sure you do. And, uh, and, and and you, 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 you could, and you should, I would say, but there's always, then there's that question of like reaching out to somebody to ask for uh, a book endorsement. It's a little scary, you know, because the person could say no. Um, but then, you know, not asking eliminates the possibility, um, that they say yes. And, you know, I think you even kind of brace yourself of, uh, even if they say no, hopefully they give you feedback that helps you improve the book. <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, a corollary to that is people that need a job reference mm-hmm. and they're concerned if they go to someone that knows them well, that person will say, oh, I can't believe you're leaving or, um, are you sure you want to leave this job or that they'll get some negative feedback? And I've talked to people about how to also identify maybe the safe person to ask first, the person that feels more like a safe space to ask these questions in. Maybe your request to somebody to be a job reference or your request to somebody for a book recommendation is start with the easy one, somebody that you feel that you can have a candid conversation with and move forward to tougher conversations from there. Because I do think you have to warm up to this. And I think you have to be feeling that you're gaining confidence. And that's important for a lot of folks. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of areas where like a baby steps approach is is helpful to at least build some, what I hear you saying, build some momentum better to at least start small and and keep moving than it is to feel discouraged by that first attempt, maybe. I think it is. And I think the other thing is, if you hear something negative, maybe you've asked, do you see me moving into a role as a partner in this firm? And you get the answer, 
I see you as a partner at this law at a law firm, but maybe not this law firm. Mm. That can feel pretty terrible, but rather than leaving it there, I encourage people to ask questions. Well, tell me, tell me why you say that. Why another firm, but not this firm? Those may be due to factors outside of your control. Maybe your firm doesn't have the bandwidth to be able to promote somebody. Maybe they don't have the uh, revenue in your department at your company to be able to justify another promotion or another FTE. This is the same as when you're hiring people and you're told, no, you can't have a new role or a new person to come in to support. And I think understanding what's not about you and what is about you and what you may be able to change is really important to learning and growing. Mm -hmm. So one other thing that you coach um, leaders and executives on, not just um, asking questions, but sometimes, you know, delivering bad news or information that people might not want to hear, whether that's in response to a question or, or otherwise, what, what, what are some ways that you you help people through that or any scenarios that that you could share with us? Sure. Well, first of all, I, I am a huge believer that never giving people honest feedback, even when it's tough feedback or critical feedback, is a real mistake. I work with a lot of executives, a lot of lawyers, a lot of CEOs, uh, chief operating officers that sometimes are reluctant to give people negative feedback. They want to hide from it. They want to give it to their subordinate to deliver. They're, they're, they don't want to be viewed as the bad guy or the bad person. But I really think that giving candid, honest feedback in a constructive way is important. I think the hard part, and it is certainly for my clients, is when they hear something that is not great feedback and it's not delivered well. It's really not delivered well. So I've had clients that have come to me and said, you know, the feedback I got was, well, you need to understand your work has slipped or, you know, you need to understand that you need to step up and create more of a leadership role for yourself or to take on more authority. And it feels like you're still doing fairly routine tasks. And I've had clients that have come to me and said, that was just devastating. First of all, I didn't understand what that meant. Hmm. And secondly, that just doesn't sound like me. And I really encourage people to think about how they want to go back and probe that feedback because Getting the details around that can be important. If you hear, for example, you need to demonstrate more leadership's presence, I think you have every right to ask, what does that mean? Right. Help a little more specific, please. Be more specific. Can you give me an example of mm -hmm. that? Or can you share with me some people that you think have demonstrated that kind of presence in the organization and how they've done that? And clients often say to me, well, why wouldn't they have told me that if they already knew what I say, because people often want to finish giving feedback. They want to get it out mm -hmm. and they want to make it quick and they want to move on. And your job as the person receiving that feedback, before you ask yourself, is it valid? Is it not valid? Is to get enough detail around it so that you can understand what you're receiving. Right. Yeah. I, I know um, a leader from a hospital, you know, kind of a mid-level leader who is being told by an executive that she needed to be more confident that she needed to come across as more confident. And she didn't know what that meant. And she didn't feel real comfortable asking and uh, kind of had to navigate a little bit on her behalf of, of trying to get some more specific feedback of like, well, what, what is the behavior that the senior leaders are not appreciating? Or, or how would you describe the behavior 
um, that that they were looking for. And and to your point, that that more that it was a mistake, I think, for them to give her that vague feedback. But the the more specific feedback was was basically stop telling us all the nuance about a decision and just tell us the decision. And if we want to understand the thought process, we'll ask. I mean, that that was more a matter of communication styles, even I don't you know that they were describing as confidence. But what a great example, though, to realize it was really about communication styles and nuance. I've heard similar iterations of that by people that have engaged me to work with someone that's part of the C-suite, but similar feedback to what you heard for this person, more leadership presence, more gravitas, mm-hmm. oh, um, right. more confidence. Um, those mean different things. And, and, I, and I love that this person went back and got that additional information because when it becomes about communication style, we just want to know what the solution is or what the answer is. And if we want more, we'll ask for it. Then you have a good idea of what you're, what you need to do to adapt to that environment. Mm -hmm. But back to, you know, one of the first themes we talked about, she wasn't really comfortable um, asking for the, for the specifics. So there was a little bit of, you know, coaching and advice, not just from me, but from somebody else that was working with her to, to encourage her, you know, to, to, to go and ask and, and, and to work on that. So I think part of the concern, Mark, is that people think they'll be perceived as weak if they go back and they ask for details or they ask for follow-up or they probe for something and they're told, we we can't increase your salary by 20% or we're not going to give a discretionary bonus this year. And what happens if I press back? Will I be negatively perceived? Will I be considered a thorn in someone's side in the organization? Or if I keep asking for more information will be, oh, they're so weak. They're just trying to get, you know, information around something when I've already told them what I think. (laughs) But you also have to be really cognizant of what you want in your career or what you want professionally. And if you want to move forward in your organization, but you don't know how, you've got to ask some questions about how to do that, or you need to consider that you may be feeling really dissatisfied in a role that might be well-suited for you if you only had a bit more information to process and to consider. Yeah. One, one other question, Laura, about, you know, delivering or, you know, giving bad news. Is, is that a key skill for attorneys who I imagine probably often have to deliver some form of bad news to a client who's involved in a lawsuit or legal matter? It's interesting with attorneys. I think you're trained to be very risk averse. One of the things you're doing for clients is trying to avoid risks or when there's been a risky situation that's gone awry or looks about to go awry, that you're trying to figure out a solution to it. But being the bearer of bad news is often difficult. Telling a client that you've lost a motion in court that's really significant and could impact their business. Maybe it's an injunction that prohibits them from an expansion or a new line of work. Those are tough. And I've seen attorneys that struggle with with telling clients that. I think one of the ways to address that is to think about how do you deliver that message? If you're just giving the bad news and you're not trying to think of solutions or you're not trying to think of ways forward, then I think that bad news sounds a lot worse. But the same is true for giving bad news in an area where I think attorneys are even less well-equipped. That personal feedback, evaluation, retention, uh, telling people you might not make partner or there's not a place for you to advance in this practice. If you just give that message without giving some detail of understanding why and maybe offering some opportunities 
I'm happy to be a reference for you elsewhere. I think there are other firms that would be better suited to your practice, and I want to help you find those. I think supporting people through bad news, whether it's a client or a colleague, and providing some solutions and alternatives is really critical. That's the best way to give bad news. It's not just to dump it. Sure. So um, one other thing I want to ask you, Laura, before we wrap up, to, to, to talk a little bit more broadly about some of the executive coaching that you do. Um, how, how would you make the case if somebody was sort of on the fence, you know, successful executive, they've had a great career, you know, how or why um, is, is coaching still helpful? Is it a mistake to ignore, you know, the, uh, the opportunity to get some coaching? I think the more senior you become in an organization, it can often be more isolating And it's limiting the people that you can turn to that you can truly be open and confident with. If you're the general counsel in a large corporation, you may not be able to share with any of the people that report to you. Maybe you have hundreds of attorneys, but you may not be able to share with them some of the dilemmas that you're feeling in terms of how you report to the CEO or your relationship with the board. It's hard to go to the board and ask for feedback or ask for input. And some of the work that I do with clients is really providing somebody to talk to that can help facilitate your thinking through these situations. If you're feeling that you can't share some of this information with others, the work I do is confidential. Um, I'm open and honest, but I'm also going to probe you for what else you could be doing or other other ways to get the answers and the information you need. But I think it is tough at the top. And I think coaching has become an increasingly important tool for people who feel I can't share this. Uh, I'm in competition with someone who wants my job. I can't really talk openly within my department. Or I need my CEO to see me as strong and confident and available. I've had very high-ranking people say to me, my job is to take responsibility and to do the work that my CEO needs taken off his or her plate so that they don't have to worry about my job. That's a huge burden to bear. And I think that becomes overwhelming for people at times, and they need someone to help think through the concerns that they're experiencing, what some alternatives might be, what some ways forward might look like that work for them. Mm-hmm. And then you know, when you talk about facilitating people's thinking, can, can you think of times where you've helped uh, a coaching client think through processing a mistake that was made or a mistake that they're fearful is perhaps happening? Sure. I have a client that was unfortunately put in a very bad position working with a large team and made some mistakes themselves and how they went about the work, but was also part of a broader situation that wasn't great, wasn't great relationship with the client involved. It wasn't a great relationship with the internal team. And I think the person's tendency was to say, I'm just going to take my licks and I'm going to try to move on and try to get through this, but I'm not going to mention it again. And I think often the better approach is to really confront it and to be able to talk to your supervisor or your client. Look, I recognize this could have gone differently. I have some thoughts about how I would do it next time um, and how I want to address the situation and move us forward here. But they're afraid to do that. One of the ways I facilitate thinking about is that the route you want to go is to talk about what that path looks like. What happens if somebody says, you know, Mark, it's great you brought that up, but I don't really want to talk about it anymore. How's that going to feel? 
what's your reaction going to be? What might be the next thing you would do from there? Or what if the person says, hey, Laura, I appreciate you being candid with me. I just don't think we can bring any new work to you. Do you want to know that, even if that's painful now? Or do you want to leave it where it is? I think a lot of it depends on the personality and the goals of the person that's receiving that bad news, how we move forward from that. So I like to facilitate that discussion. Let's talk about how that's going to feel or how you might react or what you might do. Mm-hmm. A little bit of scenario play in advance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Laura, thank you for for sharing you know, not only your favorite mistake story, but thoughts on you know, the mistake of not asking questions, the mistake of not giving bad news or or the mistake in in, in maybe delivering bad news in, in a way that's um, less helpful. So I'm, I'm glad we could talk about all of that today. And, you know, as a fi- final question, I mean, I encourage people to visit Laura's website, lauraterrell.com. There'll be a link in the show notes. How, how would you, as a final question, you know, how would you describe your ideal client in terms of you know, who, who's a good fit for you and, and who you can most help? Well, I work with a wide variety of clients. The ones I enjoy working with the most are people that are really smart and come to me and say, look, I'm, I've thought through this. I know what's not working well. I know I need to change it. I need some help thinking through that, but really have a desire to do the work to make the change that they need to make to move themselves in the direction they want to go. I think it's hard if you don't have uh, the engagement part of coaching is you need to be able to be committed to the work and be in partnership. I'll help hold you accountable. I'll help think through issues with you and help guide you, but it's ultimately up to you to do the work. And that's why people that are super talented and super ambitious that the outside world might say, Hey, they don't need coaching but they really want to do the work to try to move forward. Those are some of my favorite people. Yeah. Yeah. And it sounds like a combination of um, not just smart, but also having the humility to ask for help. And I, to me, that's a sign of strength. Like there's, there's nothing wrong with asking for help. Sure. We do it when we go to the doctor, when we hire somebody to fix the problem that we screwed up on our um, home electrical repair. And it's hard to admit sometimes that, you know, we're not feeling well and Tylenol won't fix the problem or we've screwed up something at home. We all need help in different ways. Mm-hmm. And I think it, I certainly do. I've worked with a number of coaches, which is one reason that I was motivated to do this work. So mm-hmm. I'm yeah. a big believer in that. Yeah. And I'm, I'm trying to remember who I should be referencing or citing here, but I remember reading about, um, you know, how, how children very naturally ask for help. If they're scared, if they have a question, they ask for help. It seems like you know, kind of a, a natural tendency. But then, as you know, people become adults, somehow we're, you know, maybe taught or conditioned um, that I think, as you touched on earlier, that asking for help might be viewed as a sign of weakness. When you know, I, I don't think that's really the case. Maybe in some settings it is viewed that way, but hopefully not everywhere. I think that's right. And I love the analogy to children who are also open to saying, can you help me with this? Or I don't know the answer to that. Or why does it work that way? Or why can't I go to the pool instead of going to school for the afternoon? Uh, These are open and honest questions. And I think people need a non-judgmental environment and often which to Mm. ask that question. Mm. That's very well said. I totally agree. So I think we'll we'll end on that note. But uh, again, our guest here today has been uh, Laura Terrell. Laura, thank you for, uh, again, for sharing your story and, and sharing all of your insights here today. 
Thanks so much, Mark. It's been a pleasure being with you. Thanks. Well, thanks again to Laura Terrell for being our guest today. To learn more about her, for a link to her website and uh, and more, look for links in the show notes or go to markgraven.com slash mistake 229. As always, I want to thank you for listening. I hope this podcast inspires you to reflect on your own mistakes, how you can learn from them or turn them into a positive. I've had listeners tell me they started being more open and honest about mistakes in their work. And they're trying to create a workplace culture where it's safe to speak up about problems because that leads to more improvement and better business results. If you have feedback or a story to share, you can email me, myfavoritemistakepodcast at gmail.com. And again, our website is myfavoritemistakepodcast.com. 